This podcast contains explicit language and mature content. It might not be appropriate for all listeners. There were people inside, there were men inside that would come up to me and say, you know, he's really innocent. He's really innocent. Nobody believes him, but he's innocent. And we just want you to know that because you're his teacher. And knowingly in your heart, knowingly in your mind, that you are an innocent man. And everybody, the whole world for me, it was like the whole world was going against me. Uh, no trust me, no believe in me. And it was only my trust in God and myself. That's the only thing it was. From Boston, Massachusetts, you're listening to Mass Exoneration. These are the stories of people who were convicted of crimes, crimes they never committed, and what happened next, for them and for the people they had to leave behind. I'm Brian Pilchik. This is Episode 3, Victor, Part 1. My name is Victor Rosario. Uh, and for 32 years, my name was W39653. I was in 1982. Uh, I was convicted, uh, sentenced to life in prison, and for a tragedy that I never committed. Victor was born and raised in Puerto Rico. When he was five years old, his father abandoned him and moved to New York City. Ten years later, Victor came to New York to begin searching for his father. At the age of 15, I just was blessed one day. I found my father on the street in Bronx, New York. And one, one of the things that, that uh, caught my attention about my father was that I saw that he was, he was drinking and, and he was like a, the big man in the street uh, uh, in Brook Avenue in the Bronx, New York. Victor stayed with his father in the Bronx for a while. And then something unexpected happened. Victor was going to be a father at the age of 15. Victor had a girlfriend. Suddenly, they had a baby. From there, my life was like uh, uh, looking, for, uh, looking for a job, looking for work, looking to be a man of responsibility, uh, to be responsible and not to do what my father did. My father abandoned me, and uh, that's on something that I don't want to do. But in that time, the life was so tough, then I began to do the same thing that my father did. I abandoned my kids. Victor didn't want to leave his newborn, but his girlfriend's parents had something else in mind. They took their daughter back to Puerto Rico. Victor wasn't allowed to see her or the baby. From that, my life began to be going down. I started going to the street. I started uh, drinking a lot. That drinking was one of the things that, that most uh, uh, affected my life. Uh, I was a heavy drinker. Uh, but also, I just was working at the same time. Drinking a lot. Meeting other women as a teenager. At age 18, he had another child a daughter named Maria. No one took Maria away, but Victor didn't stick around. 
he left Maria, just like his father. And then Victor met someone who changed him, Carmen Garcia. When I, when I met Carmen Garcia, I met Carmen Garcia in New York City in, in the Bronx. And we met, uh, she was a worker in, in a company in, in New Jersey. And I travel every day. We travel from, uh, from the Bronx to uh, the job that was in, 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 in New Jersey. And uh, I met her in the factory. And from there, she, we began to be a friends. And, and that friendship started to develop a relationship. And we decided to come to Lower Massachusetts, where she has some family. And that time, I don't have anybody. Carmen had four children of her own. Victor hadn't been there for Maria, but he could be there for these children. He settled down. I was trying to raise this family. Even then, I abandoned my own family. But it was that strong desire to raise this family. Meeting Carmen, moving to Lowell, Massachusetts in 1980, it was a chance to live a different life, a better life. I think that in those two years that I lived with Carmen uh, Garcia in that time, I think that was the, the, the two years, the most happiness years of my life. Uh, because uh, I think that I began to be knowing what family structure is about. And, uh, and from there is that, that everything, everything I think that, that my life has started changing. Family and structure, Victor felt like he was starting to turn his life around. But things were about to get a lot worse. Two years later, Carmen learned that her mother was sick. Her mother lived back in Puerto Rico. And I said to her, well, you know, she, she's sick. You need to go to Puerto Rico and be with her. And on uh, that occasion, uh, I remember that I was um, uh, employed and I was working. And uh, I remember that I said to Carmen, I have a car in that time. And I said, Carmen, I will sell the car. I will get your, your tickets. Prepare yourself, go to Puerto Rico, and stay with your mother. Victor sold his car. Carmen bought her plane tickets. But something was wrong. She's supposed to be in Puerto Rico Monday. And that time, I started feeling that something is going to happen in my life. In that time. And uh, even say to Carmen, Carmen, uh, even the, then I get you the ticket and... and to go to, to see your mother, that your mother is sick. Don't go. Don't go. Victor was scared. Because I, I think there's something going to happen to me. I think there's something going to happen, something big going to happen to me, to my life. I started feeling that. And that time I started drinking more than ever. And that period of time, it, it was more heavily, heavily drinker. Uh, no eating. It was just drinking. Something is worth knowing that something going to happen to me. I got that fear that something is going to happen to me. Don't go. But Carmen went. 
Carmen had been gone for a little over a week. Victor was drinking with two friends, Felix and Edgardo. Late into the night, they wanted to buy some drugs. They went to this house. We went to the 44, okay, 44 and the Cato Street, where the drugs supposed to be by. And I remember that we went to the back door and Felix and entered into the house. And I was outside with Edgardo. When I smelled, I smelled that it was a smoke in the house beside of where the house we was. Smoke. Something was on fire. When I went to the alley and I saw out of the window, I saw, I saw basically smoke coming out and people screaming inside the house. That's where I cannot resist it. And I, with my right hands, I break a window and trying to go inside the house. And I believe to this day that if Egaldo not pull me out of that window out, I would not be here today because I, it was so desperate that the sounds of the children and the people that was inside screaming in the house and the fire was so, so big and so hot. The fire department eventually showed up. So did the newspapers. They talked to Victor. Newspaper guy asked me for my name and what happened into my hands. Victor cut his hand, trying to get inside. He explained that to the reporter. He asked me what happened in the hands. I told him, then I broke a window trying to save the people. But Victor had been too late. The entire three-story wooden apartment erupted in flames. Eight people inside the house were killed. Five of them were children. It was the worst fire in Lowell's history. Even I thought that that was hell, because that's what I saw. Even I remember that I was preaching that Jesus Christ is coming. For me, I call him today, it was a calling. It was God calling me. And that's the reason why I connect, and this is look like hell. Uh, I think there was a spiritual connection that was happening to my life in that time. For Victor, the fire was a vision of hell, and it led him to a spiritual conversion. The teaching uh, of when you begin to be a Christian, or you begin to be no Christ, what happened is that most of the uh, evangelists, especially in Puerto Rico, that practice uh, Christianity, uh, when, when you come to Christ, you have to stop every habits that you had. And that's a doctrine. That's a doctrine. That's a, basically is more the more foundation for the spiritual growing into a person they call themselves Christians. If you're a drinker, you have to stop. If you're a smoker, you have to stop. And, and that's the way it is in the Spanish culture. So after the fire, Victor went to see a priest. The priest gave him a Bible, and Victor started down the path to becoming a devout Christian. To start, Victor immediately gave up smoking and drinking. 
That was a big change, and a sudden one. Victor had been drinking since he was 10 years old. That's something that I would never deny, that I was a heavily, heavy, heavy drinker. He had become dependent on alcohol. Now, giving up alcohol so quickly brought on a life-threatening medical breakdown. It's called delirium tremens, severe alcohol withdrawal. Within a day or so after the fire, he would lose his ability to think rationally. Which was pretty bad timing. Because the morning after the fire, the police started looking for Victor. The fire had been serious, and the police were convinced it was an arson, that someone set the fire on purpose. The police needed suspects. A witness had seen three men outside the building that night, and the police had seen Victor's name in the paper. Basically, they found out basically by the newspaper. Remember that I said that I spoke with a reporter in that moment. In the newspaper, in the Lower Sun, came out an article about Victor Rosario uh, trying to save some people. And then from there, I believe that the foundation came to be, oh, what is this guy doing here? What is this guy doing here? The police zoomed in on Victor as their prime suspect. The fire happened at 1 a.m. on Friday morning. By 10 p.m. on Saturday, the Lowell police had Victor in an interrogation room. The language that they were speaking was English. I really don't understand anything at all. I just was follow, follow basically the instruction that they was giving. Come here. Uh, now that I speak English, you know, I can even, even, but basically it was more about follow me, you know. And that's what I did. I don't think anything, I don't think anything, I go anywhere. And that's my attitude in that. Uh, because I'm innocent man, I'm you know, expecting that this is, this is what happened. Now, it's a tragedy that happened. I observe people, people basically screaming. I observe fire. All these things are still in my mind. You know, it was, a, it was life that was lost in that time. It, it, it was lost. And it was like a trauma for me. You know, it just, I just wanted whatever it needed to be done, I would do that. Try to help in whatever way I can. But I never expected that I became to be a suspect. I never expected to be a man that uh, was accused to set a fire. I never expected that. Victor didn't speak English at the time, only Spanish. He spoke through a translator. Over and over, he told the police that he had nothing to do with the fire. But they kept questioning him all night, hour after hour. The delirium tremens kicked in, the alcohol withdrawal. With it came the symptoms. Confusion. Hallucinations. Terror. I remember that I was looking serpents inside the room, uh, hearing voices inside the room, uh, looking like a devil, faces for me. It was like a, a spiritual experience that I was going through. Even I remember that I was even went down into the into the ground crying and screaming. Serpents, 
devils. That's what Victor was seeing while the police kept pressing him and pressing him. It went on past three o'clock in the morning. The police wrote up a confession in English. They put it in front of Victor. In the end and all that, it was when they, they put me a piece of paper in my front. And for me, I was thinking they just uh, let's go, let's go home. The translator didn't bother to translate the confession. Victor didn't know what it said. It said that Victor and two friends set the fire on purpose, with Molotov cocktails, bottles filled with rags, set on fire, thrown through windows. He signed it. And with that mindset, the let's go home, I found myself uh, put my handcuffs in my hands and, and then throw me into a cell. Once he signed the false confession, Victor's fate was sealed. Victor was about to lose the life he had built with Carmen. Lose his partner, her kids, lose his chance at love. And he wouldn't get it back. Not for many, many years. The police knew Victor was not in his right mind. They sent him to Bridgewater State Mental Hospital. He stayed there for six weeks. They gave him medication. He recovered. The day the hospital released him, he was transported back to court. Dates were set for trial. He was charged with one count of arson and eight counts of first-degree murder. One murder for each of the people who had died in the fire. Victor went to county jail to await trial. And in the eyes of the other prisoners, he was already guilty. I can say waiting for the trial was the more hardest thing. Waiting for uh, to go to the trial. The newspaper in the front page, you know, this saying all this thing about me and people was looking at me, you know, with those kind of eyes that how I can, this guy, you know, we need to take this guy out because uh, look at what he did. Because people believe whatever they read, they believe it. And when you believe that, you don't know how much damage you can cause to another person. And that's what I was going through. I was going through so many, uh, even, I even can know sleep because one guy from another cell is screaming, you a baby killer. It wasn't just the other prisoners. The correctional officers, they believed it too. The correctional officers was even uh, basically escorting me. It that not was a pleasant moment in my life. Uh, threat, a lot of threat, a lot of threat, they're going to kill you. Uh, it's a fear. It's a process of fear trying to uh, terrorize you. And knowingly in your heart, knowingly in your mind, that you are an innocent man. And everybody, the whole world for me, it was like the whole world was going against me. Uh, no trust me, no believe in me. And it was only my trust in God and myself. That's the only thing it was. 
Victor went to trial. He had never been accused of a crime before. He had never even seen a trial. And everything was in English. I, I can remember that I would sit down, even then I have an interpreter beside me. I don't know what's going on. I only listen to what my interpreter said. I'm only watching every single movement in the courtroom. I don't know what's going on. The prosecution showed the jury Victor's so-called confession. Well, all this. I don't know. You know, and everything was like everybody was against me. It's not was a way that, if it was a way, everything was against me. But even that, that everybody was against me, it was my hope that the truth in that day, it would come out. But when everything returned, then I was guilty. It's impossible to imagine what that sounds like. The word guilty in the ears of an innocent man. My mother was there, and I said to my mother, go to Puerto Rico, because this is not going to look good. They already found me guilty, and I don't want you to hear the sentence. And I remember that the lawyer started crying, and I looked straight in his face, and I said to him, why are you crying? You know what they want, they're going to go back to prison. You know what, prison is me. After the jury found him guilty, the judge sentenced Victor. Life in prison. The guards put him in a police van and drove him in shackles to MCI Walpole. It's the maximum security prison where every new inmate starts off. But I decided in that time when I went into the van, I decided even to, to face whatever happened, the reality of all. And I remember even the music that was in that van. And I remember the officer said to me, they are waiting for you. I even not respond. Take me to Wapo. Wapo is that. That's that's the big thing. That's that's the maximum. That's 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 the scary thing that any human being can go. Because that's the way they describe Wapo. They're gonna kill you. They're gonna rape you. They're waiting for you. And that's the way it is. Now when you enter into WAPO or any type of prison, now it's a, it's a way of living. It's a different world. You cannot look the officer. The officer can say whatever. You cannot agree with that. And that's the training that you receive from my other prisons. You can't so much as look at an officer the wrong way. Victor needed to rely on his faith once again to survive. I think that, for me, God was protecting me in every way. I thank God that at least the person that, the right away, he was waiting for me, he was a Christian guy. And his name is Kevin Dodge, and today he's a pastor in 
uh, in the Cape. Uh, he was doing uh, life sentence, life sentence also, uh, in second degree, and he get out. Uh, he was my mentor inside the prison system. Uh, he right away take me to the church, and right away I began to be a leader in the church for the Spanish population. Victor became a church leader for the Spanish-speaking inmates at Walpole. He worked with the prison chaplain. About a year later, Victor was moved down to MCI Norfolk, a medium security facility. Things were looking up. From the beginning, from the beginning I knew. Because my faith, my faith. Okay, I know that an innocent man. I know that justice will be done. I know. Victor believed that he would be released, and his plans for a future beyond the wall sustained him. And I I remember one day I asked the Lord to uh, give me three things, and these three things he was, because knowing that he knew God know my my life, he know my mind, he know my soul, he know everything. And because he know everything, I trust in him to do justice in my life. And based on that, I ask God to uh, give me three things. Give me, give me a wife, even then I was in prison doing life sentence. Uh, give me a house and give me a car. Maybe it sounds crazy, but that was my thought in those days. A wife, a house, and a car. Not exactly a short order. And then Victor looked up from his prayer, and he saw her. I remember what that day when I was praying, uh, uh, Beverly passed through uh, that hallway, and she was a teacher in the school, in the prison system. And... uh, and that moment, I was just surprised because I, my, my feeling was so, so strong. Beverly starts. When I saw her, I was almost 27 years old. Oh, my God. She was walking fast. I mean, it made me hit you, you know, because she was walking fast. Uh, in the prison system, you know, it's not easy to a person, especially a woman, to walk into uh, the prisoner environment. She called my attention, you know. <laughs> and right away, you know, uh, uh, it, it was the most beautiful thing. You know, it's always, I said, you know, everything that coming from outside is a blessed to me. You know, anything, even a bird coming from outside, inside, it was, it was just a blessed to me. And that's the way I look at it. She was a beautiful woman, gentle woman, you know, understanding. She knew the situation that not only me was, but everyone that was there. A student that she had, you know, everybody can say the same thing. She worked with kindness, you know, a beautiful person. Beverly was working in the prisons. Her faith had brought her there. People are fighting to get out of prison. I was fighting to get in. I always felt called to correctional education. And when I got the job at Norfolk, I thought that, you know, I, I had really struggled hard to get it. It took me a lot to get in there. 
it's a, it was really a very unique experience to go inside. I knew, I knew I belonged in that place. I knew that was where I was supposed to work. Um, like Victor, I have a real strong faith that um, I check things out with what God would want me to do before I do anything. Victor was arrested in 1982. That same year, Beverly was finishing school. I was I was finishing up my my master's at Harvard that year in eighty two, and it's like thinking back about it, and I was like, wow, I don't even remember reading the papers about that that tragedy happening. Don't remember a word about it. She almost didn't end up working in the prisons. Almost. When I had been in grad school, I had a run in with a teaching assistant. And he and I disagreed on the content of a paper, and so he failed me on the paper because of the content. And so when when I spoke with the dean, the dean spoke to the teaching assistant, and of course then we became great enemies. And so I was looking for a new job, and I was looking in the Globe, but I saw in the Globe that there was a teaching position at MCI Concord. And so I said, well, it's just a GED teacher. I could do that on one foot. So I applied for it, and I went there for the interview, and the director of education evidently had gotten an earful from the teaching assistant, who was also part of the interview panel. Um, And she immediately had no use for me, and I knew I was never going to get this job. So I said, that's okay, no no problem. But I was unaware that she was statewide director. I thought she was director at that facility. And so this happened again and again and again. Beverly would put in an application, show up for the interview, and find herself before the same director and teaching assistant. Denied. And then one day, she checked the paper. And there was a position for a developmental literacy specialist. And I had just spent my graduate studies at Harvard becoming a reading specialist. Oh, but it's in a prison. I'm never going to get this job. So I decided I would put my interview suit on once again, and I would go to MCI Norfolk. And if it didn't work, I would take myself out to lunch, and that would be the end of my prison involvement. I wouldn't look anymore. So I got there, and I waited. And they made me wait an exceptionally long time. And then when I finally got inside, um, I waited a while and I waited a while. And then the principal came out and he said, I am so sorry to keep you um, all this time, but we've been looking for people to be on the interview panel. The director of education and the person she usually brings both have the flu. I got the job. I later realized it was because that's where Victor was and we were supposed to connect. And I never would have met him at Concord or at Walpole or Concord Farm. I needed to be at Norfolk, and I needed to be patient for God to work out the pieces. That's how I look at it anyway. Beverly was hired to teach English at MCI Norfolk. Victor had been inside for four years, and he didn't want to learn. English was the language of the people who had put him in prison. But the, the English language for me, like from the beginning, you know, he was one of the biggest factors, uh, even in my own case, you know. Uh, that was the struggle that I had, you know, real struggle. I don't want to even learn it. I just don't want nothing to do with the English-speaking people. He was just uh, that kind of attitude that I get, you know, the man that was angry. But the Department of Corrections made it clear that if Victor wanted to get parole, get out of prison early for good behavior, he would need to learn English. So he started taking Beverly's classes. And now I saw myself obligated, basically, because that's what the DOC did. He was obligating me to go to school and to learn. When they told me, you know, you have to go. You have to go to learn 
the English language. And it was tough for me. It was hard for me. Uh, even I don't want to look at her. I don't want to look the eyes. I don't want to look. Even being in a room, in a classroom with her, I said, I can't believe that I'm here. Uh, you know, I don't want to look at it. Uh, and from that, you know, from that, that's the way I think that we begin to meet each other. When I would walk through in the morning, I would, you know, be talking in my head to God and to myself and thinking about what I had to do for the day. And I would just say, let me look at them the way God looks at them. Because if I look at them like rapists and murderers and wife beaters and robbers and all of that, I'm going to be too afraid to teach them how to read. And that's what I'm here for. From the beginning, Beverly saw that Victor wasn't like her other students. He stood out in a crowd. He really did. Most of the students came to classes in sweatpants. Um, it was acceptable. Most of them wore sweatpants, um, jeans, or the DOC uniform. The, they looked like hospital pants and shirts. And um, Victor always came with dress pants and a dress shirt and a sweater, pullover vest, some sweater over it. Um, always carried a portfolio. He was like the mayor of Norfolk. He always looked very professional. He carried himself very professional, and as I watched him interact with other people, they deferred to him. He had he had a respect that was, I would assume, earned, that it wasn't just given for nothing, but he had respect among his peers, among the, among the um, guys, the other inmates, as well as with the staff. And it was just remarkable. I mean, it was like nobody else I saw there. I refused to use a uniform as a prisoner. I think I never, I never used a, a, a uniform. I always was uh, dressed up. You know, I always walk in the prison system. Like, you the administration, you, you know, you can do it, I can do it too. And, uh, you know, with that kind of attitude, see you walking with a copper in your hands, I'm walking with a copper in your hands. Walking with a cup, like a coffee cup. You're not going to be different than I. You're a human being, and I'm a human being too. And I don't want to let nothing to destroy me, to put myself down. And uh, that's the way I walk. I remember then when I went to, to the class, you know, uh, I think that she can verify that. That when I walk, you know, it's, it, it was different. I was interested in who he was. There were people inside, there were men inside that would come up to me and say, you know, he's really innocent. He's really innocent. Nobody believes him, but he's innocent. And we just want you to know that because you're his teacher. And so, oh, okay. And then I read his, I read his six-part folder. His six-part folder. Victor's complete record of every infraction, every complaint. Victor hardly had any. And he had, what, three? Two or three disciplinary reports, which if you think about it, living with, you know, 12, 1,500 other men... And you only have been yelled at, basically, that's what it's like, getting sent to the principal's office two or three times for, for nonviolent offenses, like not standing for the count. You know, th- things that make you roll your eyes, but that's what they, they live by inside. Um, so I saw that, that, that he truly was who he said he was. He was, you know, he didn't embellish his, his life or who he was. And Victor, he began to see who Beverly was, too. Everything changed when when one of her her pastor showed up to the prison system for a retreat, and she told me she told me the pastor called me and and told me the teacher this give you some class to you. She said they can in my church, 
And from there, everything changed. He said, oh, no, I can't believe this. No, I can't believe this. This, this is a Christian now. She never told me this is a Christian. Now she told me this is a Christian. And I started running from the church, running to the class. And I found her in the hallway. And that was the point that then I really realized, said this is God sending to me, to my life. And uh, from there, everything started. Five years went by. Beverly kept teaching Victor, and his confidence and skill in the English language grew. He started using it as a leader in the prison church. I began to be the first uh, bilingual, I believe, in one of the uh, graduation, master of ceremony. I began to be to do the, the translation in both languages. You know, for me that was amazing because now, you know, I don't know English at all, and now I have to translate. I think I can be better translated from English to Spanish than Spanish to English, but I can do the work. And, uh, and I began to be the first one, even in NCI Norfolk. I began to be, you know, uh, the first master of ceremony. I can never imagine, you know, you say, master of ceremony, what is that, you know? But basically, I began. And uh, everything started, you know, when I started putting attention to the classes, Everything that was telling me to learn, you know, I was trying to do the work. Then one day, Victor had the opportunity to complete a program that was only offered at a neighboring prison. He would have to get transferred to do it. He would have to leave Norfolk. When he left, um, and I realized how much I missed having him in class and I missed talking with him, I missed, I missed the conversations and I missed who he was as a as a spiritual guy and as a, just as a good friend, as somebody to talk to. Um, you don't usually get an opportunity to, to meet people like that inside or to have the opportunity to have somebody in your class where you can understand them better. Um, so it was like, yeah, this, this, is, this is worth the trip. Let me go to Bay State and see how he's doing. Beverly wanted to visit Victor. Um, you know, they have all these crazy rules about you can't be friends with anybody in your class. You can't talk to them. You can't see them. You know, if you run into an inmate on the street, you have to come back to work the next day and report it. All kinds of things like that to, to keep the, the distance between the staff and the inmates, um, which I, I bought into. They were paying me. I did what they said. So she quit her job, stopped working for the Department of Corrections, tried to visit Victor. It took nearly a year to get clearance. Well, the, the first thing that happened was they didn't know that I had resigned my position, so they thought I was still an employee that just had lost her mind and decided to visit an inmate. And I tried to explain it to them, and I ended up getting barred for six months until they figured they could believe that, yeah, I really had quit. Um, it was the strangest thing, but that was the mess, because they, they sent me a letter and said that I'm not allowed in and, and take it up with the superintendent and blah, blah, blah. And so I had, to, I had to jump through all these hoops to prove that I had actually resigned my position and then decided to visit him. And so all of that craziness was going on when, we first, when I first wanted to visit, and then I had, there was that six-month hiatus. When Beverly finally got cleared, that first visit was... Oh, my God. <laughs> that was a mess. <laughs> it really was a mess. Oh, my God. It's, from the beginning, it was a... She came to the visiting room, and to be honest, I, I was afraid uh, because 
one, the administration, when when someone, okay, especially from, from the prisoner's perspective and from the staff perspective, it's a, it's a line, you know, cross the line, okay? And I say, oh, no, what, I'm in trouble now. That was the first thing, you know, oh, I'm in trouble now. What's she doing in here? It wasn't just Beverly's past job that caused problems. There was a culture clash. There are a lot of cultural differences, and, and I describe the differences between us as if you can picture um, a Latino flamenco dancer or somebody doing samba or one of those very fluid dances. And then on the other hand, picture an Irish woman doing step dance, okay? And so that sort of picture is just the difference of our cultures and of who we really are and what blending we had to do to bring it together. For me to understand her, I have to go to the uh, television uh, channel too, uh, even to see uh, uh, soap opera, just to see American people, you know, how they walk, how they talk, how, you know, just to learn to how I can communicate with her because, you know, what's easy for me is be Latino and Latino is a, this kind of macho man. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not what's easy to, the, to have that understanding of each other. And they literally spoke different languages. And to the point that I said, Don't, let, let's connect it in English language because in Spanish, I think we're not going to be connected. I'm, I, I take responsibility for the good and the bad of his English. Um, he's done. He's done remarkable. I, I really. He knew very little when I first met him, and I was so pleased. And so, as we developed our relationship, we made a conscious agreement to speak English. Visit after visit, they grew closer. Victor's language changed. So did their relationship. What's what's something that you would say to Beverly in, in Spanish before? And before, te amo. And now, I love you. In 1993, in prison, Victor proposed. I tease Victor about him proposing to my father, not to me. <laughs> that's, a, that's the other thing. In the, then I never proposed to her. Uh, I say, you have to bring your father. Your father has to bring. You have to bring your father here into the prison system and your father has to give me the okay to marry you. If not, not gonna be any worry. No marry at all. You have to bring your father. And the father came. The time was that the father show up and when the father show up and we talk and I just, I remember I said to the father, I cannot offer nothing to her. I cannot offer Money, I can offer future, I can offer nothing. The only thing I can offer is just to love her. That's the only thing that I can offer. That's all that I got. And uh, from that time, the father said, well, this is what she wants, but, you know, let's do it. They had to plan the wedding from two sides. He did it on the inside. He did all the paperwork on the inside. And I, I did all the stuff on the outside. And the prison system, uh, to to be a person to be married and any man to be married, they have to ask permission to the superintendent. That's the big father, you know. That's the big papa. <laughs> you have to ask permission to him. 
That's the way it is. That's the way it is. You know? Then I do all the process, I, the blood and all, all those things that need to be done. Uh, and it was provided, and then she did the other part outside that she needed to do. And that's where I, you know, our wedding come. It paid off. We had the absolute last beautiful wedding inside. They changed the rules after us. We were able to have someone play a, an organ for a processional and recessional. Um, an inmate baker made us a three-tiered heart-shaped cake with pineapple and fresh cream inside. Um, we had photos. He had 20, you had 15 people? 15 people from inside. I had 25 people from outside. My pastor from the street came inside to perform the wedding. Um, we got to wear special clothing. I wore, I had a veil. He had all white. Um, it was just, it was an incredible, incredible thing. My father, my, my, uh, some of my family were able to come. His friends came. People from our church came. Um, and the kitchen officer brought up ice cream, and we had sodas with it. Then the time came, you know, these kind of moments where uh, they say you are, now you are husband and wife, and she looked at me and I looked at her. And this was the first time I think that I give you a kiss to her. Uh, that's the way it was. And uh, I said, finally, I can give you a kiss to her. And that's what I said to her. I said, this is finally I can give you a kiss. And everybody was surprised. And even I say that. Finally, he can kiss her. They hadn't kissed until that moment. The guys were so happy, you know, all the prisoners were so happy. Even they dressed me. Yeah, they, they, they did so many things to me in that day, especially when I'm taking a shower. And I remember one guy show up and put uh, a shaving cream. After I take a shower, put shaving cream in my head, and, uh, and I had to take a shower again. Every, you know, it, it was a mess. <laughs> it was a mess. <laughs> They were doing a number with me. And I remember even the chaplain at that time said that, you know, you're going from one institution to another institution, <laughs> you know. But the beautiful thing is, the most beautiful thing is that, that now we marry. It was special from... 601 was it or 602 when we when we had the processional because we had a little dan dan tara processional um until it was all over and the officer came and you know very calmly and nicely just said to victor it's time to go but the the whole idea of walking out and knowing he was still there um after that she i saw it coming in and i saw it going out and I had to return back into myself. And that's the way it was. Still there. Still inside. 
Because even though Victor Rosario was innocent, he was serving a life sentence. He had experienced one miracle. After losing his family, he met Beverly. He was a married man, even in prison. But for him to actually get out, that would take a different kind of miracle entirely. Now she has sent a way for me to get out. And that take 22 years. You can learn more about Victor and see pictures of him with his wife, Beverly, at massexoneration.com. Victor's story isn't over. Stay tuned for part two. We've got more episodes for you. Subscribe, follow us on social media. Mass Exoneration is produced in collaboration with the New England Innocence Project, fighting to free people in Massachusetts, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. To help them provide lawyers to people like Victor, visit newenglandinnocence.org. Mass Exoneration is recorded at the PRX Podcast Garage in Alston, Massachusetts. Their community recording studio provides equipment and training to storytellers, producers, and editors. Thanks to Alex and Ian for all of their support. You can learn more about what they do at podcastgarage.org. Lisa Cavanaugh is our executive director. Jeff Harris composed our theme. Ken Richardson takes our photographs. Betsy Del Campo created our logo. Special thanks to Megan Sheridan, Tim Clark, Andrea Peterson, and Ira Gant for their help with this episode. Our podcast is edited and produced by Nicole Baker and me, Brian Pilchik. My name is Beverly Rosario, and this is Mass Exoneration.